Doctor Who Pod Shop. Okay, well, let's do it. No, I <laughs> you know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah. What blew that? I'm the Doctor. And who are you? Who are you? Outpost Gallifrey presents Doctor Who Podshock. This is episode 109 for the 30th of April. 2008. I am Louis Trapani, and Ken Deep will be joining me very shortly. Anyway, this is a very special Doctor Who podshock. We had the pleasure of interviewing John Levine, who is also known as, uh, for many Doctor Who fans, as Sergeant Benton of Unit. That's Unit. U-N-I-T. Back in the day when it stood for United Nations Intelligence Task Force. And for real Doctor Who fans, it still does. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't get into that here. So uh, this interview was recorded at the end of March, and this was uh, prior to the announcement that John Levine will be appearing at JumpCon. He will be appearing next month at TimeGate Regenerations, that's um, in Atlanta, Georgia, on May 23rd to the 26th at the Holiday Inn in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can find more information about that at jumpgate. I'm sorry, at timegatecon.org. He's appearing with Tony Amadola of Stargate SGI. Shortly after this interview was recorded, JumpCon announced that John Levine will be appearing at their conventions. JumpCon is a series of conventions taking place across the U.S. touring the U.S. Be sure to check out jumpcon.com for various dates and locations and be sure to jump to JumpCon. John will be appearing at the following dates at JumpCon. Stanford, Connecticut on July 11th, 12th, and 13th. Northern Kentucky, River City on September 5th, 6th, and 7th. Then Chattanooga, Tennessee on September 26th, 27th, and 28th. Hampton, Virginia on October 10th, 11th, and 12th. And Montgomery, Alabama on the 14th, 15th, and 16th. He may appear at other JumpCon dates, so be sure to keep checking jump JumpCon.com for details. So stay tuned for John Levine on Doctor Who Podshock. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is John Levine on your Podshock. I played uh, Sergeant Benton from 1969 to 1974. I had the joy, of course, of working a year with Patrick Troughton, four years with John Pertwee, and a year with Tom Baker. So to Ken and Lewis and all of you listeners on the Doctor Who Podshock, I cannot tell you how exciting it was to be down here in Hermosa Beach with a very close friend of mine, Josh Lee, giving you this interview. So once again, John Levine, Sergeant Benton, thrilled to be on the Doctor Who Podshock, and I will return. I shall come back.
I don't quite know how to promote my show Living a Second Life. I could tell you we do sim tours. I could say we interview sim venue owners and residents of Second Life. Or maybe I could just tell you that the show is one man's view of a virtual world. So that's Living a Second Life with me, Tim Q. Find us at tdroid.libsyn.com or on iTunes. On Doctor Who Podshock, Ken Deep alongside Louis Trapani, and joining us is the legendary Sergeant Benton himself, Mr. John Levine. Welcome to Doctor Who Podshock. Well, Louis and Ken, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. Oh, the well, pleasure is all ours. The pleasure is all ours. We've been fans of yours for many, many years, for too long to to really name because we. We will all just feel really miserable if we actually right, trace right. the amount of years. Uh, but welcome to the show. Um, this right off the bat, we know you, you have an appearance coming up in late May in Atlanta, Georgia. That's that's your next, I believe, convention appearance, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. Uh, May twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth, and twenty sixth. Yes, uh, I think that's Memorial Day weekend here in the states. If my if my uh, yes, I, I I believe it is. That's the, because it's a four day convention. I believe, although they always end up as a three day convention, but I think they're <laughs> pushing it as a four day. Ken and Lewis. Uh, the the convention is called TimeGate, and you can find the link on the uh, Gallifrey Embassy website or Podshock. .net, org. There's a link there for TimeGate. It's in Atlanta, Georgia in late May. And John Levine, of course, is the guest of honor. It's a mix of Doctor Who and Stargate. And I just wanted to give them a quick shout out because, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, well, they're, they're nice enough to bring you to the East Coast. And well, has it been a while? Uh, yes, it has indeed. It's been quite a while. I mean, usually it is on the West Coast or in England, of course. But it's you know when you get to my stage of the game, gentlemen, I'm always thrilled. One of I mean, my great thing about Doctor Who is I was just writing a few things the other day. Douglas Camfield, who was the gentleman that gave me the part with the blessing of Barry Letts, the executive producer, and I must just tell you that uh, George Camfield, the son of Douglas Camfield, because Douglas is dead now, of course, mm -hmm. but they've just had their first child. And I've actually, I do a lot of um, camera work. You know, I used to be an AV professional and I love doing audio visuals and so on. And I've just shot his, shot, that sounds awful, doesn't it? <laughs> I've just, I've just got some footage of their new three, three month old baby. And it might as well be Douglas Camfield. So, you know, life is almost a full circle, wow. Ken and Lewis. You know, this whole Doctor Who thing has given me such an extraordinary life. And it's things and moments like this talking to you two now. And remember, just last month, I was with the beautiful Sylvester McCoy and Sophie mm. Aldred on the, on the Doctor the Who cruise. cruise. Yeah. So life has been incredible at the moment. Thank you. Well, one, of the, one of the things I usually ask, uh, it's, a, it's a standard question for me, is are you amazed by it? 
Amaze would be a superlative that I would have to add about two or three more to. It's been a stunning experience, given that I was just a small, little, lonely, scared, shy boy born in 1941, which seems an eternity ago now. And I left home because I didn't get on with my father, and I went to London. And I'm sure you've heard a little bit of the story. I happened to be working in a menswear shop uh, right near Piccadilly Circus, where the Eros is, the famous landmark of London. And I happened to be working in a shop called Hope Brothers, and it was at the same three months as The Dirty Dozen was being filmed at Pinewood. Now, wow. by pure irony, so, um, uh, oh, the, the chap that played Kojak, Kelly um, Savalas, he came into the menswear shop where I was working, and I sold him about 500 pounds worth of uh, gear. And there was a, a, part, a small part going in the Dirty Dozen, and he invited me down to the studio uh, to actually take the part. But, of course, you know the story. I ended up getting to the studio, and the gentleman said, look, and if we let everyone in that said that Telly Savalas or Clint Eastwood had asked them to come to the studio, we'd never have any movies to make. So I, I didn't get that part. But the next month, I got Doctor Who. So something happened at that moment in time. Now, Sergeant Benton wasn't, or uh, Corporal Benton originally, wasn't your first experience with Doctor Who. You, you were a Yeti, I believe, at one point. Yes, indeed. Now, now, and a Cyberman that... even earlier than that. That's right. Well, I didn't know. Uh, which was the first? I think it was the, invasion of the, moon. the Web of Fear was 1968. Well, whichever way around, we won't waste time trying to work out the exact year. But I know that um, Douglas Camfield, his, one of his best friends, a man named Jimmy Garrod, was the agent that Douglas went to for all the smaller parts in Doctor Who, Ken and Lewis. And what happened is they saw me work. And it's funny because I'm here with Josh. I've realized, you know, the harder the work, the more professional you are. And if you use your own inner integrity, I've come to the conclusion that the I mean, I, I'm in my early 60s now. And I've realized, you know, when you look back on life, you know, you can see what you've done. But when you're 18 or 19 years old and you try and look forward, how can you look forward in life? Because you haven't lived it. So you mm. don't know whether you're going to be an actor or a writer or a gymnast, whatever. But in answer to your question, there is no question that I, I'm very lucky that I'm a working class lad. Now, you know, some of the gentlemen that played the doctor, they were slightly better educated, like Colin Baker went to a very private school and Tom Baker came from a private school. But I was very, very, very working class. In fact, we were so poor when we had a rainbow over our village, it was black and white. <laughs> I, that's how poor we were. I'm telling you. And when I was six years old, my father bought me one present for Christmas. I opened it up. What was it? An empty shoebox, gentlemen. I said, what is this? He said, it's a G.I. Joe deserter. Shut up. And that's the kind of childhood I had. But no, the Doctor Who, just to answer you, Ken and Lewis, it's been amazing because I've been an emissary. I like to think of myself as an emissary for the BBC we do make the best television in the world. I mean, I know some of your American stuff is reasonable. Uh, but, you know, we, we, kind of felt, we feel as though we've got the, the upper hand on drama and, and things like that. But the whole no Doctor question. Who thing has been stunning for me. There's no other word for it. Well, it's amazing. You know, and, and I know uh, it seemed that Douglas Camfield was, was a director that was pretty loyal to people. I mean, once he kind of knew that you were on the ball, he, uh, he seemed to, to go back to some, um, some actors that were like staples for him, some, you know, the, the bankable people. And it, you seem yeah. to be one of them. 
Well, I was, and it turns out if you were to watch Inferno, which I was lucky enough to go over last year to do the doc the documentary voiceover for the DVD, commentary. the commentary. Um, what they Barry Letts, who I've always loved, Barry Letts. I mean, I don't like using the word Christian, gentlemen, but you know, now and again, when religion, if it's what I call a clean, decent religion like Christianity, um, he was always a Christian, and he and Douglas Camfield had noticed my hard work. From the very beginning, when I first put the Yeti suit on, now, most actors complain about being a monster, but I have to say being a Yeti was horrendous insofar as it was 115 degrees inside the costume, and Douglas, bless his heart, had seen my work ethic. Now, remember, when you're a 20-year-old man and you're in a studio for the first time, you don't always think that people have witnessed or viewed your performance. I mean, you notice a lot of extras do absolutely nothing. They seem to think they can just hang back and do nothing at all. I work so hard at it, it goes to prove, Ken and Lewis, that Douglas and Barry saw it, and that's when you imagine my feeling when I'd finished the Yeti, Douglas came up to me and said, you did a wonderful job because we had three chaps in the Yeti costumes that were very nervous, very kind of worried about being claustrophobic. And so I helped guide them through that story. So in answer to your question, Douglas always used the people that he could trust and that were never late and never got drunk during the lunch hour. And that, you see, is how I ended up being RSM Benton because they mm. both trusted my, my integrity. Well, I always wanted to see you go and become a, a captain or a major or something. You're always a blue-collar kind of guy, and that's why I always identify with Sergeant Benton. You're you worried about your men in the story. Yeah. One of the things that's amazing about that era of Doctor Who and the unit era is uh, its believability in the, the character is just very natural. The characters are – they're not um, stereotypes. They're not uh, formulaic. They, they're almost allowed to breathe on their own and to, and to be on their own. Well, now, Ken, that's a very, I mean, I shouldn't be patronizing to you, but that's a very clever observation, because if you look now, I've watched the new Doctor Whos, and I love them. But the one thing they don't have is that episodic feeling, that every, you know, waiting every week. I mean, when I went to the cinema watching Flash Gordon back in 1948, what was better than to be continued? What will happen next week to the Doctor? See if Benton survives the later. And, and, and that's the only thing I miss from the new series. But, I, I mean, David Tennant, John Pertwee would love David Tennant. He would really? absolutely... Oh, yes. I think he's the closest to John Pertwee, given that John was my absolute favorite Doctor. I mean, obviously, you've heard Tom was a little difficult to work with because his ego was rather large. But then I look back and I think, well, what would I have felt like if I were to take over the greatest part in England, which is that of the Doctor, in one of the longest-running franchises ever on television? Mm. So, no, the originality, Ken of the characters in the beginning, like Nicholas, uh, Brig Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, Benton, and Captain Yates, it, it was wonderful that they let us breathe our own feeling into the character. And I believe that's why Benton rose up in such popularity. Because if you look at me, when you watch me, I always say this because it's important to my inner feelings. I've never been vain or big-headed. I've always been a, what I call a realistic young man. Well, I'm not so young now, of course, but... <clears throat> I've always understood that there is a pecking order. And if you do things right, you do things the proper way, give it the correct amount of thought, put it through your own filter of integrity, which is why I love Sophie Aldred. Um, there's several people in Doctor Who that were a little bit kind of lackadaisical about the characters they played, but some of them were as thorough as we were in our day, which, to end your question, Ken, I think that's why the classic series is so popular even today. 
Now, you had mentioned Tom Baker and him coming on as the role as the Doctor. At that time, was did you and the rest of the crew have the sense, or, or were you all informed that the show was going to go in a different direction and it's no longer going to be Earth-based? And Because up until that point, the past five years with John Pertwee in the role, it was pretty much an, uh, a Earth-based uh, series for the most part, and Unit was a... Uh, a vital part of that, and of course, Benton was a regular character, and and, and it was steady work for you. Uh, were you given a heads up saying, "Well, we're going to be changing things around"? And I, I realize you were in a couple stories with Tom Baker after that, but then after that, you know, and that was it. You know, um, can you take us back to that time? Yes, I can indeed. And the reason I can take you back so clearly and with such uh, an accurate description is. When, when I did the last year with Pat Troughton, Pat was adorable. Pat was a very shy, almost a scared man. He almost hated going out in public. And he wouldn't do conventions for years and years mm -hmm. until John Pertwee and I talked him into it. And his uncomfortableness in the beginning, especially in like places like Chicago, was quite pronounced. But then when John Pertwee took over, you have no idea for what it was like for me. First of all, he was the royal family's favorite comedian for many years. As you know, he was in the longest-running radio show, the longest-running TV show in British history. So when Pertwee took over, Ken and Lewis, it was such a joy. And, of course, I was a little lucky in that John uh, turned to me very quickly. John uh, had a marriage that wasn't, you know, like most marriages in those days when the 60s. Uh, it wasn't like the happiest of marriages. And I know John used to love uh, going away on his cabarets and all the usual things that we used to do together. And so that, when we came to the end of, of John Pertwee, I remember feeling a little dislodged in myself because we knew Nick was going. We knew Richard, who didn't do as many as me, of course, Richard Franklin. And, of course, mm -hmm. Ian Marta left quite soon. Um, no, no, sorry, excuse me. He, he was with Tom Baker. I keep thinking mm -hmm. he was with John, but he wasn't. So, yes, we were given the heads up, Ken. And we were told that it would go in a different direction, but they are never very specific at that particular time. Now, you've got to remember when we first, when we did the first show with Tom Baker, I can remember him being very nice to Nick Courtney. In fact, I've just read a little bit of Nick Courtney's um, reference to this moment we're talking about in his book. And I, I re realize now that Nick suffered a lot of whether people liked him or not. And there were several people in my life that were like that. Jacqueline Pierce, who played the, the lady in Blake Seven. Uh, mm -hmm. She was like me when I was younger. We were very scared of being disliked because our parents disliked us. And we often thought that we would crumble under any kind of attention. So that's why people like Jacqueline Pierce, myself, Fraser Hines, uh, Colin Baker, were very verbal and very kind of excited about our lives because it took so much to get where we are today. Mm. So when the producer came in <clears throat> and said that Tom Baker's taken over. None of us had heard of Tom Baker at all. And I remember that Nick Courtney being quite a drinker, which he admits himself, he used to go drinking with Tom quite a bit in the beginning. But I noticed Tom went off of Nick a little bit very quickly. And he kind of went off of me as well. And we started to feel there was a gap. There was a gap in the friendliness within the rehearsal room and the studio. And it's, of course, because Tom technically wanted unit gone. He wanted the show for himself. Uh, which several of his companions will admit to. So Unit was so popular that I think he had a little bit of a problem wondering if he, if he could face us down as actors. But, of course, he had no trouble. He's a brilliant actor. His doctor was brilliant. I only liked John Pertwee more because John was more my cup of tea. Tom was mm -hmm. uh, His ego got a little heavy in the studio, and he caused a little bit of an atmosphere, which I didn't think John Pertwee did. 
So in answer to your question, we knew our time was limited. And you know, don't you, that I ended up as the last member of UNIT in the last Tom Baker story, which I can't yeah. quite, something to do with the Android, the Android invasion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was and a very tough... Go on, Ken. Go on. Oh, I was going to say, I have, to, I have to thank Josh, by the way, for, for being there with you and our, our L.A. correspondent, helping us out and, and, uh, and keeping everybody on, on track. Yeah. He's got a, a perfect recall. Yeah, thank you, oh, Josh. yes. I I'm the guy. That's why I'm here. And, uh, hi, everybody. And, yes, I'll let you get back to it. Here you go. Oh. Uh, I, I'd like to praise Josh as well. First of all, he's, been, he's got me a couple of videos I've been looking for for the last 10 years. And so Josh is my number one man, <laughs> certainly in Hermosa Beach. <laughs> But no, um, all, again, you see, this is a general thing. Now, Josh, I met just about um, two months ago, although technically I kind of met him. I talked into his camera about 15 years ago. Uh, but I love nice people, Ken and Lewis. And, you know, like you two, you bother to do this. You bother to do it because you love it. So you add friendship, loyalty, integrity and energy. And you have exactly how I felt about being in Doctor Who, and to this day, I don't do a lot of acting now. Um, I mean, when you're 60, 64-ish, there's not a lot of work to go around, although I do do independent movies. Uh, one I've just finished, I think, was called... Um, Andrew, no, not... I, I'll have to remember the name later. Automations um, or automatons? Or, 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 yes, automations or... Yeah, or, I, I, I've got a four-second scene in there, and funny enough, it's one of the best scenes I've ever done. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't believe I did all that stuff in Doctor Who, and yet I love my four-second scene in... in or automatons, yeah. Ken. It's automatons. So, yeah. So, anyway, Tom Baker took over. We had a reasonably nice time with him. Uh, Terror of the Zygons, one of the last ones we did with him, of course, was another Douglas Camfield-helmed uh, production. Mm -hmm. And you know Dougie did 52 episodes yeah. in all, which is why he was known as the king of Doctor Who directors. <laughs> Now, after the the Android invasion, um, I mean, Unit was was phased out of the show and stuff. But there have been a few reunions and things. And I've always been curious: Have, have you ever been invited to to rejoin uh, in some of these either the charitable things or anything like that? And and now with the new show on the air, they seem to be um they they seem to be very in favor of embracing. Um, the actors and, and the creative people uh, involved in the classic series. I know Colin Baker has visited the set, the, the set and, uh, as well as several other actors. Um, ha what kind of reach do you have as far as, in that sense, the connection to the show? Well, I have, um, I have all the good connections. I mean, I, I don't know Russell T. Davis, and I had heard one of the reasons. In fact, I think uh, my wife, Jennifer, who works at Warner Brothers Studio in Burbank, we were talking the other day, Ken and Lewis, why UNIT hasn't been mentioned. For example, Big Finish, they've only ever used Nick in, 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 as a voiceover, mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't enjoy that uh, very much indeed. And we've heard that there was a problem um, um, uh, politically mm -hmm. with the, the word United Nations Intelligence Task Force ah, used. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard it, and I always believe there are certain people in the Doctor Who world I trust. Uh, and, and when they tell me something, like somebody's just told me they think they found the five remain, remaining episodes of Web of Fear, which I would be interested in because I have one of the small Yeti mechanoids that was nearly thrown away by the prop man, which wow. I just found in my mother's wardrobe 43 <laughs> years after I was the Yeti in Web of Fear. And my friend and I, Kent Edens, who uh, he's the gentleman that runs my website, which is john-levine.com now. We're in the big league. We're on YouTube and all that <laughs> stuff. We That's had awesome. 24,800 hits in the last six months, which amazes me, Ken and Lewis. 24,000 hits from me, I, I find remarkable. So in answer to your question, 
my connections may have been a little soiled or sullied for two reasons. When we heard that they were going back to do Doctor Who and they were looking for a producer, I actually put up for the position because a lot of fan clubs around the world, have, uh, they've seen my work as a director because I've been producing and directing for the last 21 years mm -hmm. and I became a very good producer and a pretty good director. So what happened is I put up to be the producer and of course Phil Collinson obviously got it and I'm wondering if I may have blotted my copybook a little bit <laughs> because they may have thought it was a bit presumptuous of me being an ex-actor, but they also know I work in Hollywood. So the reason I haven't been to the studios and answered your question, Ken, is I've only been to Wales once, which is, as you know, it's all shot in, in and around Cardiff in Wales. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know quite a few people down there. And I know Eve, of course, who's the, the, the female lead in Torchwood. Yeah. We did a signing together last year, and she's one of those gorgeous women. I don't mean gorgeous as in to look at, although she's a very beautiful woman to look at, but she's got one of those hearts and souls that you, you rarely meet in English actresses, and that's mainly because she's done so much Shakespeare with the Royal Shakespeare Company. But I, I haven't bothered to connect because I've only been to Wales once, but if I'm invited to Regenerations again in a couple of years, they've promised they would uh, possibly show me the studio. But I've also heard, Ken, that they, they don't let a lot of people into the studio. Now, you may have heard differently. I think they'll let Colin Baker in. He was a doctor. The Sylvester mm. McCoy, he was a doctor. I don't know how many companions have been invited in. So we, we don't know how wide the invitation would be. So that, that's the answer. No, I haven't been there yet. Well, if I could break in, Russell T. Davies is actually a huge, huge fan of the original show. So I, I think that would actually, that wouldn't be out of the question. I think you're underestimating yourself, Mr. Levine. <laughs> well, I, I, well I, yes, I, I am a bit that way inclined, Ken, for no other reason than I find it easier to be told no when you haven't asked than to be told no when you've asked. Oh. Mm. Yeah, you see, and, and, and also remember, because of my what I call my working class thinking, I wouldn't naturally presume. I'd heard that it was a closed studio for most of the people. That's, when, that's what I heard. So, and I was just a little uh, timorous, if you like, in just phoning them up out of the blue, especially as I'm in Hollywood. You know, some right. people in, in England, they kind of think because I'm in Hollywood and I'm married to a lady that's an executive assistant at Warner Brothers, they either think I'm high-flying or so rich that they can't even <laughs> walk on the same right side of the road as me. And, of course, between you and I and the 50,000 people that listen to your show, we're not that rich, and I haven't worked for a year. So, you know, it's not all what they think it is over here. Well, that sort of brings me to my next point was that I just wanted to make that um, since Josh is there and, and he's a West Coast correspondent that you make your home in, uh, in California Angeles. now. Yes, I've been there for um, I've been there for uh, 20 years, Lewis. Uh, what, 19 uh, here for, for, for 20 years and been married to the same lady. We live in the same area because she's been at Warner Brothers for, uh, for 10 years. But California has been good to me, Lewis. It's been good to me. We've not been robbed or burned down. Although we nearly got caught in the fires last year, they came very, very close. But so far, Burbank has been very, very good to us. And so you've been you've been um, directing and producing then because I've always been curious. I'm, I knew uh, I had heard that you were in the States and I'm like, well, I haven't seen you on CSI or, you know, any of the things that, <laughs> that you know, jobbing actors seem to you know, uh, gravitate towards. So you've been behind the scenes more. Well, I, I have, Ken, but not not out of choice. I tried to get an agent. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. 
Getting an agent in Hollywood now is 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 almost more it's more difficult than than I ever I knew. And the trouble is, to be honest with you, even though I've got the fame of Doctor Who behind me, and I'm still a pretty good actor performer because I do a little bit of stand up now. I emceed the Emmys. I stood in for Steve Martin. Uh, he was caught off. He was going to do the Emmys down in San Diego, but he had to go to a Tom Hanks honorary thing, and I ended up standing in for for Steve Martin and emceeing uh, the Emmys, which was what three years ago. And oh, there were offers coming in from NBC and everybody thought I was going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread in terms of an ex-Doctor Who actor uh, doing all these wonderful MC. Because the one thing I am good at is being a master of ceremonies, mainly because of the English accent and the fact that I'm six foot two and I love dressing in my lovely suits. But the <laughs> truth is, uh, I, and what, the, 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 what had really happened is the moment I arrived here, Ken Lewis, Robert Wagner, who I'd met in England when he was making, and I'm sure you may be too young to remember this, but he made a series called Colditz, which was a, a British war, uh, a World War II escape series called Colditz. And it had all the greatest actors in England. Well, Robert Wagner was there. Now, his wife, as you know, is Natalie Wood. And my real name is John Woods. And when my daughter was born, which was the same week as Robert Wagner was in the BBC doing Colditz, I wanted to call my daughter Natalie after a very famous ballerina. And so she would have ended up as Natalie Woods. So, of course, when I met Robert Wagner, the irony of all this story is that his wife died the same week as my wife left me, which led into kind of 10 years of a dreadful divorce. And I wouldn't recommend divorce to anybody. But that's what happened is Robert Wagner remembered me. He met me in Hollywood heard my voice and my comedy on KCET when I did a pledge drive down on Sunset Boulevard. Wow. And because I could juggle and do stand-up, I raised more money for KCET than any other performer that they'd ever employed. So obviously, I suddenly, within a month of being in L.A., I remember thinking, oh, my God, I've got it. I've got it. Everybody told me I'd be famous. Everybody told me that every studio in the Hollywood would want me. Well, the truth is, it doesn't work out like that. But what happened is, very briefly, Robert Wagner was the star and the financial man behind a huge tennis and golf classic called Wings, which stands for Women in Need Growing Strong. And he had a, a big tennis and golf classic with all the big movie stars of the day. This was between 1991 and 1995. Well, he made me executive producer and executive director of his golf and tennis classic. So for four years, because it was for battered, raped and abused women, it didn't occur to me to ask for a fee. So I did it for free, although I got to meet all the big movie stars uh, of the day. And I thought, this will do me good. Well, the truth is, I didn't earn any money for four years. And the truth is, so many women were being raped in L.A. County. I ended up not being able to do the job because I was going to bed crying at night, having seen all these women that we men are destroying uh, by the thousands. So anyway, the long and the short of it is by the time I'd finished producing the show, I was in my mid-50s. Then I got an agent and then she died a month later. So I ended up missing the best agent I ever had. And her name, oh, she was a big lady in, in Beverly Hills, a wonderful woman, forgotten her name for now. But then, of course, I nearly got the agent that made um, Quentin Tarantino, a guy I think his name was Jack Scagletti. And he was, he was a huge agent. And just as I got with him, he suffered a minor stroke and he had oh to let all of, his, all of his customers go. So that was last year. So to cut a long story short, I don't have an agent at the moment. And unless you have an agent, you will get nothing. And that's the sad thing about Hollywood. 
Well, um, I will recommend to any agent looking to pick up uh, Mr. Levine that they have uh, a very good health care plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is sort of a spinal tap type of thing here with the drummer. I, I was going to say it's like the kiss of death to take John and your client, but he's great, but careful. <laughs> Okay, what else would you like to know, Kenneth? Well, uh, you mentioned a little bit here. before we were, you were talking about uh, occasionally going back to the UK, and uh, have you ever been asked to do anything for Big Finish? Uh, I know you mentioned that, that Nick had, uh, had gone and, and done a few things uh, for the Big Finish audio line, and I was wondering if there was ever uh, a chance of Benton making an appearance. No, and again, we don't know the reason. Now, first of all, there was a young man um, who had uh, a company called Real Time, uh, Keith Barnfather. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, he, well, he turned out to be a very, very naughty boy. He ended up buying a huge house in London, and he owes almost every one of the Doctor Who actors over a thousand pounds, which is two thousand dollars. And he's now evidently gone bankrupt. So he and all the people like the Big Finish. Now I know a very close friend of mine, Nick Briggs, has now taken over. I believe yeah, the helmsmanship. and he's the executive producer. But no, Ken and Lewis, they haven't asked me at all. But do remember. I'm a little bit, because I've been in England, the chances of them ever having a product, a production going when I visit, because I only go once a year at most, mm -hmm. mainly because I, I don't travel without my wife, Jennifer, and it's like two and a half thousand dollars every time you go to England. So yeah. I went over in November and did the most wonderful tour. We did a, a, sign, a signing tour with all the people from uh, uh, Heroes, which, uh, you know, Josh is going to be working on soon. And back in April, Josh is back on uh, in April, and we did a marvelous uh, tour of England, and, and it was fabulous. And I, I could get a lot of work in England. I do a lot of big conventions, but my main contact, someone who I trust absolutely, is Derek Hamley, and he's one of the uh, directors of um, of Tenth Planet down in mm -hmm. Essex, uh, and they do an awful lot of shows around England. And whenever I need any work, I just phone Derek. He sorts it all out for me. And, of course, I'm lucky that I draw such big crowds because I live in Hollywood. When I do go back, at least the fans clamor to see me. And that, that, that flatters me greatly. Well, we're hoping now, we mentioned a little bit earlier that you're going to be in Atlanta. And I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be able to lure you someplace a little bit closer, a little, a little easier to access. Uh, Lewis and I are both in New York, so we're hoping uh, someplace a little bit closer. So we're going to keep our fingers crossed and make a few phone calls on your behalf, as a matter of fact. Being well, that I, uh, 1985 was a little too long ago for, uh, for, for the for meeting. We, we've got to refresh it. Well, you know, obviously, I'm always... I mean, the truth is, gentlemen, I'm grateful when I get jobs. I mean, in all fairness, there are so many science fiction shows out there now. And when you think of all the conventions now with Star Trek, Doctor Who, it's not that we've died in terms of conventions, but when you think Chicago doesn't happen anymore, Gallifrey, of course, is still thriving in California here. But the truth is, when they, they only get people like me and Nick Courtney when they can't get a doctor or one of the female companions. Now, that's not me putting myself down. It's just a matter of fact. And remember, most conventions don't have you back within a five-year period because there's so many other people to have. So mm. in all fairness, I'm always very grateful just to get any convention. But, of course, I do work hard. I'm one of those people like Fraser Hines and Colin Baker. You know, some people don't put a lot of work into conventions. I've always loved it because I do love my fans. It is the fans that make us. And anyone that forgets that doesn't deserve a part or, or to be, if you like, a science fiction icon. So my pride is, is endless. I'm thrilled to this day that people like you would want to talk to me, and especially with friends like Josh. I just love honesty. I just love people that don't let you down. 
And that's what I've got in Josh, my wife, my, my editing friend, and obviously you two because you have this depth of feeling uh, for the show. It's well, I, I, I hope that you will consider Podshock a friend because Lewis yes. and I and James, who wasn't able to join us, he, he's in Leeds, and the time difference it's, of uh, yeah, doing this interview is right too now. much. Yes, yes, that's, that's, too much. That's, not uh, a good, will, that's not a good time gap. No, it definitely isn't, and uh, not when you have to be up in the morning, I suppose. Um, we were we were mentioning uh, a, a little bit about the, the the states and some of the conventions and some of the, the things going on uh, around the country, but it, there seems to be a rebirth of Doctor Who conventions, perhaps because of the the interest in the new show, uh, the success of the classic series DVDs in the United States. So, uh, you know, there seems to be more and more popping up. There was a time when it was a little bit lean, and that's not happening anymore. So I'm 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 really I'm keeping my fingers crossed because there. Are, are so many great actors and, and and Doctor Who actors in particular, uh, they do seem to be very accessible and, and very uh, willing to talk to people. There isn't, there doesn't seem to be this attitude of being a star. There, they seem to be more actors. I'm an actor. This is my profession, and yes. you enjoy my profession. Well, I again, you see your insight. You've got it dead on there because. I mean, first of all, the reason we're approachable is we never use the word star. I mean, in all fairness, we're not stars. Now, I know my fans all over the world say, oh, you're, we love you as much as Steve McQueen and all those other... Well, of course, he's dead, of course. But, <clears throat> but no, the reason we've never seen ourselves as stars is because it's the structure of the English culture. You, there's a saying, there was one line in a drama series about two years ago in England, and there was, it was a story about two young girls that wanted to be pop stars, and one of her uncles, he said two things to them. He said, first of all, everybody always lies. Everybody always lies one way or another. And the other thing, because they kept saying, oh, we want to be pop stars like the Spice Girls and whatever, and he said, look, remember one thing. I want doesn't get. That's the quote. I want doesn't get. You may want to be a great footballer. You may want to be a new Michael Jackson, but you've got to have the talent. So what we think, what I think is so different about us, I've met quite a few American stars, and fortunately, because of my warm personality, I always seem to get on the right side of them. But we Brits have always been known as approachable because if you look at it logically, Ken and Lewis, why wouldn't we be? You know, Doctor Who, we never knew that it was going to be a phenomenon. And now I'm asked the question every week. All the young kids now are going back to the classic series because they've seen the new one. They've seen the 50-minute episodes. Billy Piper, I thought, was stunning beyond measure. Next to Katie Manning, of course. He, obviously, Katie was one of my favorite uh, uh, female associates because I worked with her for so long. But uh, 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 Billy, Billy Piper was sensational. Chris Eccleson was bloody good, too. It's just that David Tennant has kind of, I don't know, he's taken on the mantle with a little bit more precision. And my God, he's going to be a doctor for a long time. But to, to, to see the fans going back to the classic series... I, I, that's why I mentioned my hits on my website. Mind you, it's a good website run by Ken Edens. And if ever you want to connect with him, just let him know that I let him know that I did your your interview here. And he's mm -hmm. a marvelous chap. He's one of the producers at Jewelry Television in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the reason sure. my website is so cool is because he's got all the machinery and the equipment <laughs> that they use at Jewelry Television to do my website, which it makes me look as though I'm bigger than I am. So obviously, <laughs> I'm very flattered with all of this new attention. And one last piece. 
I think I will be getting more invites now. I mean, I know I've got a good name. I think uh, JumpCon, I think they may be possibly interested in me as I'm in America, and that saves mm. their, their, the fare over. But any time, if ever you were to put my name forward, Ken or Lewis, I would love it, and I'm very happy either to do it through Josh here, who I trust implicitly, and I'm happy for my phone number to be given to the producer of any convention because, in all fairness, you know, if they're on the West or East Coast, they're never going to be coming knocking on my door. So I'd be <laughs> grateful for any help you can give me. Sure, no problem. Anytime. Definitely. Yes. Now, you mentioned, that you mentioned Billy Piper and you mentioned the new show. Obviously, you've seen it and, uh, and you seem to really have responded to David Tennant. But uh, do you get asked a lot about your impression? I, I, I've noticed that, that almost like an ambassadorship, the first thing they do is they go to a, doc, a classic series actor and say, what do you think of the new show? You know, as if you were going to give it your blessing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's, and I'm not even Catholic. I, yeah, it's because uh, I went to a half Jewish, half Catholic school. Just to let you lads know, it, it was called St. Cohen's, and and our anthem was Oive Maria, which I found very fascinating. <laughs> no, in all honesty, every question we're asked now is, "What do you think of the new Doctor Who?" Now, usually, um, because I am so proud of the Doctor Who franchise, and. Uh, my answer is I'm always thrilled, Ken and Lewis, that I can give an honest answer and say it's bloody fantastic. First of all, wouldn't we have died for the new special effects? Wouldn't we have died for 50-minute episodes? Although, as I said, I still think the half-hour episodic thing worked better, but that's because I'm an old-fashioned guy. Sure. But I love to be able to say how much I love it because there's nothing worse than when there's a doctor you don't like. And there's been a couple of doctors that didn't quite come up to, you know, to, to snuff. And we don't need to mention them because everyone has a doctor they don't like and everyone has a doctor they do. But I am so thrilled to be able to say that Russell T. Davis, uh, Julie Gardner, is it, and, mm -hmm. and, and Phil Collinson, could any three people have done any better in the history of British television than what they've done to this new Doctor Who? So in other words, I would, and, and, and make no mistake, even though I've heard they're never going to ask UNIT back, and even if they do, again, this is not me being me, but you know they're going to ask the Brigadier first, and then it would be me second, and I, I imagine Captain Yates third, because I was in far more than Captain Yates was, or Richard Franklin. But I would love to be in just one episode of the new series for no other reason than when I saw the Christmas episode, some of our unit guys back in the 70s when we had all the long hair and the sideburns, which looked so unmilitary, <laughs> I saw unit in the Christmas episode of, was it Chris Eccleson or David Tennant? I'm not, it, it was, it was, the, uh, uh, it was I think it was David Tennant's first episode. Well, when I saw Unit in that, I can tell you now that my little heart, I, my feelings were then, oh, my God, imagine seeing Brigadier Benson in front of this fabulous-looking group <laughs> of Unit soldiers. They all looked so butch. They all looked so strong, and they were all, their costumes were superb. So if, if Russell phoned me up, I would, be, I would pay my own fare uh, to get over <laughs> to do it. And that, no, I would, because you'd only need one episode just to meet the new Doctor to say hello. But... Like I've said, and like most people that know the insides of Doctor Who, I don't think they're going to have Unit back because the name... Well, don't, don't be so sure now. Uh, I don't know if you I follow actually... Torchwood at all. The most re uh, the, in this series of Torchwood, uh, they had an episode called Reset where Martha Jones, uh, Freemur uh, Ad uh, Adjaman, rather, who plays Martha Jones in the new... Uh, well, in the last series of Doctor Who, made an appearance there, and she's now part of Unit, and that was... Um, so Unit is still around, and you never know. 
Yeah, I was just about to break in myself. Yeah, that episode just, just aired a few weeks oh, ago. Well, I haven't seen it. Yeah, so you have like the new Doctor Who companion who is actually working for Unit. So Unit is actually... Yeah, right, so this I've is news to John. I wish you guys could see his face. I've just, I, I'm, I'm astonished because uh, you know, and then, funnily enough, to just coincide with what Josh and you have just said, Jennifer did. My wife just said that they are using another name. I thought they were changing United Nations to y- y- Unified Nations or something. So maybe there is. Look, if they phone me up, the thought of being. Well, they wouldn't have Sergeant Benton again because I ended up as RSM. And you know what RSM stands for, do you, gentlemen? No. Okay, well, in the English military, it's Regimental Sergeant Major. Okay. And, and when, I, when I did one of the big stories called Inferno, which has just come out, and, of course, I'm one of the fortunate actors. I managed to get a solo commentary on Inferno because mm. I couldn't get to the studio in London at the same time as Barry and Nick Courtney. And the fans really enjoyed the solo uh, commentary from my, myself but I think some of the other actors have gotten hold of the fact that I did a solo commentary, and I'm wondering if they've asked the producer of the Doctor Who if they can get solos, and they've told me that there will be no more solo um, commentaries because I think most of the other actors would have loved it. And the only reason I wanted a solo is I always feel that if you have three people on a microphone, you always have those moments when you think, oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to interrupt. And then someone will look at you and say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I thought you'd answer that question. And I find that when you have two or three people doing it, Ken and Lewis, that it can sound a bit jumbled sometimes. So I don't know when I'll be asked back to do any more. But certainly if that unit came back in Doctor Who now, <gasps> the thought of what, anyone, I'd be happy. That's the one thing about British actors. We're always happy when someone else gets it. I mean, I'd love to get it. But if Nick or Richard got it, the fact that one of us would represent the old classic unit in the new series, you imagine my face if that phone rang. <laughs> well, it seemed like when, when, uh, when Josh and Lewis mentioned that, uh, that they, they brought this up in, in Torchwood about Martha, it sounds like you may have to ask Josh to mix you a drink, perhaps, because you seem a bit, you seem a bit overcome. Yeah, you should have seen, seen his face just now. Well, because I didn't well, think it had been in Torchwood, you see. I mean, I've watched Torchwood, and I have to tell you, Eve Myers, is it, the leading lady? Miles, yes. Miles mm-hmm. she is just adorable. I mean, she's a real, what you call a man's woman. She loves to go to the pub, and she's such good company, and I'm thrilled for her success. I, I mean, what a great show that is, too, to follow on so, from Doctor Who. So you knew her prior to her um, coming aboard on Torchwood? Yes, it was about a year before, and I'd, I'd done a signing with her in what they call the stamp shop. There's a stamp shop in, in the Strand, which is a very popular road in, in London. And mm-hmm. I just happened to meet her, and she overheard me talking about falling in love with my wife, because I was on my own for 10 years after a very bad divorce. And she, she was asking me what it was like to, to fall in love, and Jennifer and I fell in love across the crowded room. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hadn't been out with anyone for, what, nine years, and I, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life basically just on my own. And anyway, she said to me, what's it like when you fell in love? And I said, well, I looked across the room. Uh, something kind of went in my eye. My brain turned around. My tummy turned. And I wanted to go to the toilet. And she said, <laughs> my God, is falling in love that powerful? And I said, yes, it obviously is. So she's got very fond memories of me. And the truth is, I wrote her a wonderful email because we got on very well. I love 
uh, Ken and Lewis, I love getting on with people. You've obviously gathered I'm a people person and I've got no ego to hold me back. And I love nice people. And Eve is just one of those people. And we'd actually bothered to send her an email saying, I knew you were going to, because I knew she was going somewhere. This woman had that depth of character that some of your actresses over here have got. Not many, uh, but she has that depth of character. But the trouble is, I knew that a year ago when we were going to send the email, that she was going to have been contacted so many times by so many people. We thought that my email would get lost in the deluge. So we're going to send it again in a couple of weeks because I'd love to just say hello to her. So that's my remembrance of her. She's adorable. Well, uh, mentioning going back to the whole unit thing and, and the acronym, I did realize that in that episode of Torchwood, uh, when John Barrowman, who plays uh, Captain Jack, did explain unit, he sort of um, didn't really spell out the acronym. So there may be something to the whole, you know, what the you know the acronym stands for now, and if I they're think... actually going to spell it out, and you know, on television. I really think there is, and that's the other reason why, whilst I know that everyone, including me, would love to see Benton back, the only reason I don't think they will have us back is because if we were the unit at United Nations, I think they're going to, they might worry that people are going to think that it's going back to the I mean, there's obviously got to be something going on for three people to mention this to me and for you to recognize that there may be a reason why they've changed yeah. the name United Nations. But let's wait and see. I can tell you now, if I do get a part, I mean, look, the reason I never dreamed I would is because I didn't want to get excited about it. I mean, when, when I heard Elizabeth Sladen going back and boy, did she do a good job. She did a good job. So and there's that there's that show too where oh, I can oh see yes. she has her own series now. What 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 is that called? That one? Sarah Jane Adventures. Oh, the Sarah Jane Adventures. God, imagine the Sergeant Benton Adventures. What a wonderful <laughs> thing that would be. And boy, Brigadier, Brigadier yeah. Benton Brigadier now. Ben. That's right. Get it on. Okay, well, so things- any, anything else? We we had uh, we talked touched a little bit about about how we had uh, the first time and the, actually unfortunately for us the only time we met you was back in the mid eighties during the heyday of conventions and Lewis and I were fortunate enough in those in that era of Doctor Who conventions to have met some of the greats like John Pertwee and uh, like Patrick Troughton before we lost them one of the people that we lost way too soon and way before Lewis and I became Doctor Who fans was Roger Delgado, and I would love to hear, uh, could you make it seem like we, make us meet him through you. Uh, give us an impression or your take on him of what, what it was that made Roger Delgado special. Well, now, someone must be talking in your ear. You could not have asked a better person about Roger, and I will tell you exactly why. <clears throat> when, jo- when Roger joined the show, my comfort level with John Pertwee, Katie Manning, and Nicholas Courtney, and of course Barry Letts, and most often uh, um, uh, Douglas Canfield. My comfort level, as I was a very shy, l- lacking in self-esteem young man, and uh, many times I'd, I, I'd disappear out of the studio because I thought I was going to let people down. And then when we heard one day, I had just seen El Cid with uh, Charlton Heston, uh, Sophia Loren, and of course, Roger Delgado, who mm. played a small part in El Cid, uh, which had another name in England. It was called The Man in the Cloth Cap, because one of the big scenes, given that it was shot in the ninth century, there was a man from Blackpool who was on holiday over in Spain when they were shooting the scene. And somehow this man with a cheese, I don't know whether you have these hats. I know you have pork pie hats in, in New York, but in England, they have what they call a cheese cutter, which is the one that the farmers wear, which has like a little 
uh, it's quite a flat hat. It's called a cheese cutter. Mm-hmm. And this man had walked through the scene right behind Roger Delgado. And so it was funny in the movie to see all ninth century knights on horses. And this one bloke in a suit with a cheese cutter hat on walking as though he was walking across Blackpool Pier. So that was the first story that Roger told us. Now, when he joined the show, everyone was electrified, Ken and Lewis, and to the listeners of this show. This is one of those moments when emotion is a wonderful thing. I knew from the moment I met Roger that he and I were going to get on. Now, do keep in mind that when you're a smaller part player, you often think that the bigger part players may not want to talk to the smaller. You know, in Hollywood, don't look at Tom Cruise when you're in the room with him. Don't look in their eyes and all this. And we thought, oh, was Roger going to be like this or was he going to be wonderful? Well, the very first morning I walked on location, forgotten the name of the story, But I walked on location and Roger was there with his wife. His wife's name was Kismet. And she was one of the most beautiful women uh, that most of us had ever seen in our lives. And she was the leading lady in a commercial for uh, a Fry's chocolate commercial for for, uh, Turkish Delight, which was a a lot of English people eat Turkish Delight. So everyone knew his wife and everyone envied him for being married to her. So we get on location and the very first moment I met him, the very first second he came into my life was when he asked me if I would pass the sugar for his coffee when we were getting our coffee from the honey wagon. Anyway, a long story short, he started, we, we did our outside location filming and then we got to the studio and I noticed that Roger and John Pertwee both leaned towards me because they saw me as a sensitive young man and someone that they could trust uh, to do things for them. As I was a small part player and they had lots to do, so often I would get Roger's coffee because I liked doing things for him. Well, one day I noticed, uh, I didn't know very many long words. I'm not the most educated man uh, because I was a working class chap in England and I was born during the war. My education left a lot to be desired. So there was a lot of words and quotes I didn't understand. And one of them was the word humanitarian. I thought that was a bad thing. And one day Roger Delgado came up to me and he said, I've just watched you holding those two babies. There was a couple of fans who had their young five-month-old babies. And I love babies, especially when they're not your own. And, you know, when you can give them back. But I ended up loving these kids. And and I noticed that lots of people like the disabled and people always came up to me. And we realized it was because of the basic softness of my voice. And Roger Delgado said to me, you know, John, you have a voice that could, 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 you know, pacify anyone that gets angry. And he said, I noticed it when I first met you. And I said, well, thank you, Roger. That's very nice of you to say. And he said, of course, the other burden you carry is he said, you're a humanitarian. And I thought, oh, my God, what's that? <laughs> and I remember thinking, is that bad? And so for a whole week, I thought, I went home and I said, what's that? And I looked it up and it's human. And a humanitarian, of course, we now know is someone that likes humanity. So anyway, within a week of meeting Roger, he has said, I know you're a special man, John, and, and I like you very much. And he enjoyed, he liked my two children. At that time, my two children were about nine and 11, if I remember, a boy and a girl. Samantha and Jason were my two children. Anyway, Roger invited me and my ex-wife round to his gorgeous little English cottage in the country, just outside of London. And we went there for dinner with him. And that's when I realized that this man was pure class. He was a very classy, educated, worldwide traveling man who had the heart of a lion and encompassed everyone that he liked. Um, He was very quiet, 
um, when he was in the rehearsal room, when we would walk in in the morning, because I had the joy, you see, I didn't have a car. I was only earning 50 pounds a week, which is 80 pounds an episode, uh, $80 an episode back in those days. Remember, we made no money in Doctor mm -hmm. Who. The doctors may have done well, but we companions didn't get very big fees. So when, when I started my friendship with Roger, it was just the most amazing thing when I started acting opposite him because those eyes of his were so evil because he played the master that as an actor acting opposite him, you really believed that he was going to kill you. So good was the facial thing that he did as the master. So in answer to your question in, in as quick a time as we have, Roger was the warmest, sincerest man. And being in his company was like being in the company of someone you love. I mean, obviously, the love of a man is different from the love of a woman. Uh, although these days, I wonder if there is any difference. I'm not quite sure. Um, but he was the warmest man. And once you became his friend, it was a friendship for life. So you can imagine, Ken and Lewis, that moment when we all were in the rehearsal room, when we turned on the radio, and Barry Letts phoned in. He was coming in late as the executive producer. And suddenly we heard that Barry, uh, that, that, that Roger was dead. Well, you cannot even imagine the distress that John and Katie, myself, Nick Courtney and Richard Franklin went through because the, the image he left behind was that of this, this amazing man, this heavenly figure, this man who could have been anyone from the, the king of Spain to the president of the United States to the, to the king of England. That's the power he had in his I don't know, his consummate performance. He was so professional, so polished, so educated, and so knowledgeable. Just being in his presence uh, was a thing you knew that you would never find again in your life. And sure enough, I've never met anyone that had the power of John Pertwee and Roger Delgado singularly. And then when you put them together, that's why the classic series of Doctor Who in those days was so powerful with Roger and uh, and I remember just talking to Barry Letts just last month. He happened to phone me. He wanted some information on something I was doing. And he happened to mention um, that, that, that how distressed I was that when Roger, the master, threw the cloak over me and the demons, how the cloak <laughs> should have taken Sergeant Benton, this big, strong military commando, uh, how it would have taken me to the ground. And I said to Barry, Barry, you know, how um, how strange it was that this cloak took me to the ground. And, and I said, why did that happen? He said, well, it was the pure power of your acting uh, that, 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 that allowed us to do it. And I thought, you cheeky bugger. So, you know, so that, that's the, the rounded and reasonably quick description of Roger, someone who was like an angel in disguise. He was the he was the guardian angel on your shoulder. He was the man that when he came up and said, you are my friend and I want you to be my friend, that's when you knew you'd arrived on Earth. And certainly for me, as a previously nervous actor, you can imagine how extraordinarily thrilled I was that someone like Roger and John and Douglas Canfield and Barry Letts all found me so engaging when there was me so worried about letting people down and could I act because I'd had no drama, I'd had no stage work, no voice lessons, no theater work. I was a menswear salesman on the Friday hmm. and I was a Yeti uh, two <laughs> weeks after that. So, you know, what, 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 a, what a life I've had and that Roger was, and of course we went to Roger's funeral, which was the most, uh, oh, it was, he and Douglas Canfield's funerals were the saddest things I've ever been to because they were missed big time. So let me just dedicate this little last five minutes of this podcast, if you like, um, to Roger and his spirit for coming into our lives and leaving us with the genius of his performance as the master. What well, would Doctor Who have yeah. been like without it?
I mean, it's a testimony to his acting skills because we've heard how warm and, and, and as you said, he was an angel. Um, and it's a testimony to his skills as the master because the master came off as so cold and calculating and uh, completely opposite of everything we've heard that jo Roger Delgado was. So uh, hats off to him. I mean, he was incredible. I, well, ha I have to tell you, one of, my favorite, my, one of my favorite scenes um, in the Time Monster, uh, you have some nice scenes with him where – uh, he thinks he's outwitted you, and and you come back, and then he comes back, and there's the just the play between you. Although there's a good guy, bad guy thing going on there, the whole thing has for something that could easily be so corny, comes yes. across so natural and yet fun. It, it has um it has a a gentle tension to it. In other words, it's it's not a a, a mean spirited thing going on. There's a good guy and a bad guy. And they're, they're adversaries, and, but the audience just gets wrapped up in it, and it, it just – it seems like, like you guys are just having such a great time. Well, Ken, I, once again, you, you – you, I mean you, you, you must have been in the bloody show all those years ago in disguise. <laughs> you no, know, no, I – you're, you're, you're hitting this right on the bloody nose. Well, I can I, – again, I can tell you, first of all, I wanted to do all my own stunts for no other reason than this. If you get a part in a series like Star Trek, Doctor Who, whatever, are you going to let somebody else do your stunts, especially as they're not life-threatening? I mean, I had a couple of real dangerous ones, but what I did with Roger, and this is what I mean, Ken, you've, you've got the, our characters so dead on. I said, Roger said to me, now, John, you know I'm going to have to grab hold of your arm and throw you into the, uh, the, the filing, the, the thing of filing. That's when I was in the, um, the, when he said the resourceful Sergeant Benton. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, now, John, I don't want to hurt you. And I said, well, Roger, you're, I'm a lot bigger than you. You're not going to hurt me. And, and, and I said to him, look, this is not going to sound very professional, but I promise you, even though you've been in the business a long time, the one thing I know about is extras and walk-ons because I was one, and I'm one of the rare walk-ons that made it as a leading or a leading kind of companion in any TV show. So I obviously had a talent, which I'm not going to deny. I mean, I do know Benton was wonderful. I mean, I'm not taking away my own prowess as an actor, although I never thought I was that good those years ago, but that's because of the lack of self-esteem. But now I'm watching all the old shows, which I'm doing with regular. Uh, I'm loving it now. Um, but what happened with Roger, Ken, is that I said to him, now, Roger, look, you know as well as I do, a scene only gets on to cell celluloid. You only take it once. I mean, you can do four or five takes, but the, the first take is usually the one that has the genesis of, of what you're trying to do. It's like... Um, Plus, you all know that old axiom, pain is temporary, but film is forever. Oh, 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 pain is temporary, film is forever. God, That's I'm good. learning something every day. Mm -hmm. So what I said to Roger in the one scene where he had to, when I had the gun on him and he had to throw me, and I mm -hmm. said, look, Roger, those, those filing cabinets, what I did is I moved them two inches away from the wall without telling the director. Uh, I, I don't think it was Douglas Canfield, but I said to him, if you throw me against the filing cabinet, the more noise I make, in other words, the more noise Benton's body makes, the better it sounds for you and I. He said, but won't you hurt yourself? I said, well, yes, a little bit, but I've learned how to fall. I used to do karate and a little bit of taekwondo. I've learned how to fall and all that stuff. So when, he, when we did the first rehearsal, he threw me against 
against the filing cabinet the way he would have done it because he didn't want to hurt a man that he liked. So I, I, when we got to the studio on the actual recording, I said, now, Roger, you must, even though I know you're scared to, you don't want to, but you must push me with all your force. Now, when you watch that scene now, I hit those, those filing cabinets so hard that because I'd moved them two inches away from the wall, because that two inches made them echo even more, and then I fell down. And I was always good at falling. You'll always notice I'm a great <laughs> faller. So anyway, I noticed the moment the scene was over, I actually did hurt my arm and the top of my thigh. But the first person that came up to me as soon as the scene was over with me laying on the floor was Roger. The moment they cut the camera, Roger came up and said, did I push too hard? Did I push too hard? And I said, no, no, Roger, you didn't. So the moral of this answer, Ken, is that when you have a chance to do a stunt, you might as well go all for it because Josh is so right. Pain is temporary, but it's on that clip forever. Like the demons. When in the demons down in the in the dungeon, he threw me over his head and all the stuntmen said, if you only get to get that wrong and you can break an ankle or a wrist. And I said, look, let me do it. And I think what saves people like me who try so hard to be good, I think we, you're saved by your own adrenaline. I mean, so pumped up was I working with Roger and John and the noise and the atmosphere in that BBC studio back in 1969 to 75 was so electric. I didn't give a shit whether I did break my arm or not. <laughs> so that's really why my fight scenes look so good. I well, work I, for those, Ken. I have to say, I adore your passion. The, mm. the fact that it, here we are so many years after the show, and yet it's still... It it just uh, it, it it flows right through you, and you you know you're. It's not like a, like a troublesome thing to say. Well, let me tell you a story about you know 1975. There are some no, people who, no. who who wouldn't want to share. Well, and, you're, and you're generous with with your with your sharing of these stories and 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 putting us on that on on those sets with those actors with those people. Well, Ken, it's first of all, thank you for the compliment. But secondly, you know. First of all, what is nicer than being nice to someone? I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to have been an actor in a series like that? And my great thing, it's not that I'm over grateful, but like, you know, I, I, I've just been through a couple of uh, medical things, which, you know, given me a bit of a hard year. And I've realized that, you know, there's so many people out there that have illnesses like cancer and going blind and losing their jobs and their houses. When you ask me why I'm still so excited about it, I could have not been in Doctor Who, Ken and Lewis. I could have... I, Douglas Camfield and Barry Letts, you, uh, do you know how I got the part in the beginning? Just no. roughly, I'll tell you. If you look at Invasion, mm -hmm. when we go down in the sewer to get the Cybermen, you'll see there are four people that go down in that sewer. One of them is a guy named, I think, Richard Stigwood or something. He plays the captain, and there are three extras behind him. Well, one of those men was meant to be uh, Corporal Benton. But he was late two location days and two studio days running, and he didn't give a damn. He walked in late. Now, Douglas Canfield went absolutely crazy, and he said, right, if you're late one more time, and he was the next day, I was there the moment Douglas Canfield phoned Equity and said, right, I want this man struck off the register. He's ruined our production. He's cost us over 2,000 English pounds in production time. And I then, this is what, and this is why I get so excited even today. It turns out that that very day, I remember doing the scene, and I remember this bloke being what we used to call in those days a lazy bastard. He didn't <laughs> give a shit. He didn't care whether he was in or out of the show. And all I remember is, and I watched this show just last week, so I know I'm being accurate here, I watched myself because I wanted to see 
from just last week, now that I'm kind of in my mid-60s, to all those years back, I wanted to see what Barry Letts, Terence Dix, and Douglas Camfield saw in me. I wanted to see what all the fuss about me was. Well, when I watched myself as the walk-on, I always did something that John Pertwee adored. And even Tony Hopkins, when he was my next-door neighbor, he said one of the reasons he watched me acting he thought I was what they called a good face actor. If ever you see the scenes with me standing in between Nick Courtney and the Brigadier or the Master or whatever, you'll always watch Benton convey what's going on. If there's trouble, you'll see me look at the doctor as if to say, do you need me now, doctor? Or if we've just mm -hmm. got through a big problem, I'll look at the doctor as if to say, wow, that was a narrow escape. And I think that's why Benton became successful. And it, it was that that Barry Letts had seen. So when I watched Invasion... When I was only going to be in that one thing as an extra, I watched my face, uh, Ken, and I noticed that my face reacted to everything that went on in the scene. So instead of being an, an, an extra and thinking, oh, shit, all I've got to do is just <laughs> carry the gun and walk through the scene, I right. bothered to work at it. Well, Douglas Canfield noticed that. So you imagine the next day when this chap had been fired legally, responsibly, and accurately, unbeknownst to me, look, when I saw Barry Letts walk into the room with Douglas Canfield, they'd gone in to talk about me. They'd gone in to say, do you know who we're going to get to replace him? John Woods. That, my real name is John Woods. The reason I couldn't get that name as an actor is there was a very famous actor named John Wood. My name has an mm -hmm. S on the yeah. end. So when I joined Equity, I didn't have a name. I couldn't use John Wood. I couldn't use my first two names, which were John Anthony. I tried Anthony John. I tried John Anthony. They, none of the names were available. So what happened is the reason I ended up as John Levine, which I'm sure you two is from New York know, that is totally Jewish. As mm. Smith is English, as, as uh, Oberheimer may be uh, American, but, you know, Levine is so Jewish, it's like Blo uh, Goldblum or Bloomberg. So I wasn't very happy with a Jewish name because I'm Anglo-Saxon. So the long and the short of this story is when Douglas, uh, the next day after this chap had been sacked, Douglas came up to me and said, John, we've watched you work. You never stop. And I said, well, I, I didn't even know you were watching me. He said, you're always on time. I want you to come to my office in Shepherd's Bush, which is where all the BBC uh, um, offices were. Shepherd's mm -hmm. Bush is in, just next to the BBC in, in White City. He gave me a, 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 a page of script and he said, if you can read this, when I come back, I've got a couple of phone calls to make. He said, if you can read this, when I come back, you can get the part of Benton. So in other words, if you can speak words, you've got the part of Benton. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to bloody learn words in half an hour. Well, I didn't realize then, Ken, that I had a photographic memory. I looked at the script. They were only three or four lines in per, per I mean, it wasn't like Shakespeare, so it wasn't that hard. Anyway, Douglas Camfield came back. Now, remember, he was the biggest director in Doctor Who. I mean, in BBC, everybody revered uh, Douglas Camfield. When he walked mm -hmm. into the commissary, everyone said, oh, there's Douglas Camfield. So... I went in, I read this script, and I put the piece of paper down. And he said, well, look, you better pick it up now, and we're going to read opposite each other. I said, oh, I've learned it. He said, you what? I said, well, I've learned the whole page. He said, what, in 15 minutes? I said, well, yes. Anyway, I did it. That's how I got Doctor Who. So the next day on set, you can't imagine what it was like, because Pat Troughton had put in a word for me. Fraser Hines had put in a word for me. So you notice this all comes back to the fact that I worked my ass off in the show as a walk-on and it paid off because the right people saw me do the right thing at the right time. That's where my energy comes from, Ken. That's amazing. Actually, I have to quickly break in real quick and I know we're running out of time, but uh, seeing that you have just watched The Invasion, 
I've got to ask, how did it feel to see yourself animated? For the first time. Oh, I, well, I have again just a little because now I'm more confident. But I mean, 40 years <laughs> after, I, I don't suffer lack of self esteem now. I love that animation. Yeah. And the funny thing is, they got Josh, as you asked the question, they got my face absolutely dead right. The, they, face, they, acting. the <laughs> face acting was so good. So if ever there's an Oscar for the best face actor, I will expect <laughs> to get it. <laughs> Well, oh, we gentlemen, will. this has been absolutely yes. wonderful, I have to tell you. Well, first yeah. off, thanks so much yes. for spending, your, you know, being generous with your time and spending time with us. The stories are amazing. I hope that you'll return on the show sometime in the future, both on Doctor Who and with us. We'd love oh, to I'd have love you to. back. If you can uh, pry a few more stories out of your memory, you know, from maybe we could focus in on one particular era, one particular season or episode and, and, and really pick your brain about it. That would be wonderful. And it, well, I would love to do it. You've been, and as I said, I'm looking at your picture now. And uh, is that a Guinness that Ken's got in his hand? No, it's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would be my fault. So. <laughs> well, gentlemen, this has been absolutely superb. And um, I will always do it again for you because my love for the show and to be an ambassador now of the classic series you wonder why I get excited. I could have not gotten this part. I could have not been Tony Hopkins' next-door neighbor. I could have not met Josh at Gallifrey this year. I could have not known you too. It, all it is, you know, God, I don't know whether God is real or not. Um, I, mean, I mean, I know Jesus was born in a stable. I remember that. I mean, I, you know, mind you, I blame Joseph. He should have booked ahead. But, you know, <laughs> my, my little Jesus joke there. So, Ken and Lewis, I, I thank you. First of all, let me just say a sincere goodbye to all your listeners and just let them know also that it's wonderful that they should tune in to we people that did this show, you know, 40 years ago. And let them just know that, yes, our sincerity is, is, is genuine. And it's all because being involved in, an, in, a, in a, a phenomenon like Doctor Who is just a lucky piece of life on Earth. And I will always feel this way till the day I die. So thank you for understanding that. And thank you for tapping into my sensitivity because you've got it as well. You're just as sensitive as I am on most of these subjects. So the thanks goes to all of us. John, you're a consummate professional and a great humanitarian. <laughs> uh, and when I find out what that means, I'll let you know. <laughs> Do you remember what it used to be like? Were you there in the dark days of the late 80s? Do you remember where you were when you heard your beloved show had been cancelled? Do you remember the feeling of lost as the doctor said that somewhere the tea was getting cold? And you knew the tea had been cold for a long, long time, but like me, you still wanted to drink it. Did you set aside some money? to buy a full set of virgin paperbacks, no matter how badly painted the covers were becoming. Do you remember photocopied fanzines with letter-set covers? Month after month after month buying VHSs that filled your shelves. UK Gold trying its best but never quite managing and never quite understanding that we really didn't want the logo in the corner. 
all to fill the place in your soul that the BBC had left behind. Denying your fandom at parties. Oh, who am I kidding? Like you went to parties. Defending Colin Baker to strangers. But knowing, knowing that somewhere the blue light still burned, burned on somewhere. Queuing at midnight for the Paul McGann VHS and then weeping as some fool said half human. And feeling something inside die as the universe's most inappropriate kiss heralded a note of discord that still rings out today. This is what it was like for us. The fans, the fans who believed in faction paradox, who embraced Big Finish, who wanted to hit the person who thought children need was a venue for our beloved show's death throes. People who used dial-up to watch Scream of the Salkra. We are the many who felt like a few. The lonely fans of the classic series. But now, now Doctor has returned to us, our Time Lord Saviour. We are not twelve. We remember a time when characterization meant more than simply saying sorry every three and a half minutes. But we love this new show. We are the fans of the old school and the new. We are the lovers of Doctor Who. Join me as we enter the golden age of the Hooniverse for Cardiff-based nonsense that calls out to us all. The Tin Dog Podcast. It's about time. Join me at www.tin-dog.co.uk Jump to Jump Con. Me, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, Deborah Watling, Fraser Hines, Mary Tam, Jacqueline Pierce, Terry Malloy, and many more Doctor Who guests being added all the time. Plus, meet other guests in your favorite science fiction and fantasy genres. Go to jumpcon.com for details. Jump into JumpCon. Go to jumpcon.com. For dates and locations near you, jump into JumpCon. And as mentioned in the beginning of this show, John Levine has now jumped onto JumpCon. Yes, John Levine will be appearing at various JumpCon convention dates and locations. Go to JumpCon.com for details. Uh, we had I had mentioned the, the exact dates and locations at the beginning of this show, so you can just go back and listen to that if you like. But um, I urge you to go to JumpCon.com because there are new guests being added all the time. It's a very exciting lineup and a, um, a great tour that's... Um, going to um, various locations across the U.S., possibly one near you. Be sure to check it out, and um, you better make your jump to JumpCon. I made mine. In fact, I just left my position of seven years, and yes, I jumped to JumpCon. I'm now working for JumpCon myself. So um, <laughs> in full disclosure, let that be known. We're launching. It's very exciting, actually. We're launching a new podcast, and um, we'll keep you posted on that. Ken will be uh, joining me as co-host on that, so 
there'll be a familiar ring to it as far as if you like the the feel of Doctor Who Podshock, you're going to enjoy this show as well. It's going to cover a much broader spectrum of Doctor of, of well, it will include Doctor Who, but it'll be a, a much broader spectrum of science fiction. So we'll keep you posted on the details of that once they come about. This is going to bring this episode of Doctor Who Podshock to a close. I want to thank once again John Levine for his time. It was a uh, great interview, and we look forward to interviewing him again. A special thank you to our West Coast correspondent, Joshua Liu, for setting that interview all up and making it happen. So thank you, Joshua. Anyway, we'll be back with another episode of Doctor Who Podshock. James, Ken, and myself will be back. Uh, we are in the middle of Series 4 of Doctor Who now, so once, what does that mean? That means we're doing live shows once again on TalkShoe, reviewing each episode. So check it out at TalkShoe.com. Go to our site, Podshock.net or the TheGallifreyandEmbassy.org. Both will bring you to the same place. And uh, check out our live shows that we're doing weekly. And we have other new surprises up our sleeves as well coming soon. Uh, another live spinoff show as well as other podcast feeds that will be available soon. So, um, you know, we'll keep you posted and make sure you check our website out frequently for updates. Until then, cheers, everyone. been listening to Doctor Who Podshock by the fan-run GallifreyandEmbassy.org and presented by Outpost Gallifrey at Gallifrey1.com. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. The Doctor Who Podshock opening theme is by Jeff Smith. Visit thejeffsmith.com. That's Jeff spelled G-E-O-F-F. Mr. Benton is the doctor. You mean he's done it again? He's changed. Apparently. Saw it happen this time.